Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr Andrew Corbett. We're pleased to have you join us again for the program. He brought you into his family, not to treat you as a second class citizen, but to be a child, a son or a daughter of his. Inheritance is traditionally a gift passed at time of death from one to their direct descendants. If you come under the care of someone's household, you may enjoy some of the benefits of that residence, but don't necessarily receive equal standing in terms of inheritance. Imagine being adopted and as a result receiving equal share of the inheritance, being of the same standing as those with birthrights. Adoption is exactly what God offers us with all the benefits that go with it. Let's join Dr Corbett now. His top we have received adoption. As some of you know, and some of you may not know, I am the uncle of three adopted children. And my sister and brother-in-law, who found they were not able to have their own children, went through the process of adoption. And here we are for my oldest nephew, my oldest of my adopted nephews, is now in his early 20s and my next nephew is 21 or so and my niece is nearly 15. And I say this because it's a beautiful, beautiful thing that my sister and brother-in-law have done because they became adoptive parents, which means they, they chose, they wanted these children. The process they had to go through in order to adopt was very, very rigorous. They were uh, monitored, as in someone literally came in and observed them throughout their day. They had all sorts of surveys and questionnaires to fill out. They had to demonstrate their suitability to become adoptive parents, not just, you know, tick the box, tick the box once and it's all done. They had to do it for each of the three children the actual process not only involved this intrusion into their very private lives, <laughs> but it also was very, very costly. I think initially the first adoption process cost around about $20,000. And by the time they got to their third adopted child, Lily is her name, beautiful girl, uh, the process was around about $40,000. And they were prepared to pay it because they love their three children. And as a proud uncle of these three children, uh, I'm so thrilled that they are in my life, I'm in their life, and it's a joy. And I say this because the text that we're about to look at now in Paul's epistle to the Galatians is what I consider to be, in light of what I've just shared with you, one of the most beautiful passages, we're only going to look at the first seven verses or so of, of this passage in Galatians chapter 4. I, I find this just so beautiful because the process that I told you that my sister and brother-in-law had to go through, the cost they had to pay to be able to do this, pales into insignificance compared to what God, our adoptive father, has done for us. And it's my hope that by the time we get through just these, these seven precious verses, that you will appreciate not just is God your father, which can become a religious sort of thing we throw away, 
But to understand God chose you. He wanted you. He brought you into his family, not to treat you as a second class citizen, but to be a child, a son or a daughter of his so that you had full rights as a son or daughter. Now, you might think, well, yeah, okay, that you kind of had to do that. He's God and all the rest. And I've heard people say silly things that borders on heresy because they say things like this. Yeah, well, God did that because I'm precious. I'm valuable in the sense that he was obliged to do it because, well, I'm actually really important. I'm really, really valuable and so on. The reality is that's not why God adopted us. That's not why God sent his son to pay the ransom to set us free. That is not it at all. We need to flip that thinking completely on its head and realize the reason God did this is because, not just, not just because he loves, but because he is love. First John 4, he is love. And if you can get that, it makes this this passage in Galatians chapter 4, all the more precious because God has adopted us and he has now made us his family. And in the Greco-Roman world, that was just as equivalent to being born a natural child to that parent. This is really, really precious for us to get. So let's pray as we open Galatians chapter 4, the first seven verses in just a moment. But let's pray. Father, now as I open your word or as your word is opened to us, I pray that by your spirit for all those who are listening now, all those who are watching, all those who are participating in this exchange of the truth of your word from the pages of Scripture, into our heart, into our soul, that, Father, our soul will be nourished, our minds will be stimulated, and we will come away from understanding this, being ever grateful, ever mindful of your great, great love and care for us, not because we deserve it, not because God was lonely or God needed us. Oh, Father, despite the fact that you didn't need us, despite our unworthiness, you chose to send your son and your son chose to come as our ransom, as the one who would set us free from the bondage of the enemy and to take us out of the clutches of a tyrant and adopt us into your family. And I pray, Lord, that the magnitude, the weight of this, the glory of this would actually strike people in a way that their lives are changed as a result. And I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is such a precious, precious part of this epistle. We've noticed that Paul has actually changed his tone a little bit. He will, he will by the, you know, after we get through this section, uh, we'll see Paul sort of goes back to being, you know, Mr. Firm when, when he's actually talking very, very strongly. But in this passage, he talks like a father. He talks like someone who wants his children to know the truth. I said before as I opened this up, just to give you this illustration, that I am an uncle of three adopted children. They treat my sister and my brother-in-law as if 
they were their mum and dad. Adoption is a beautiful thing. It is absolutely beautiful. And we want to understand what it means when the scripture says God has adopted us and perhaps in our bureaucratic legal framework, this is a bit difficult now for us to grasp that this is not an adoptive parent simply wanting an ornament, simply wanting a badge of prestige or a trophy as if, you know, I have these adopted children look at me. Not at all. Oh man, not at all. And when we appreciate who it is who's doing the adopting, this is no ordinary father. This is God. We might have this very glib concept of God. I, I hope by the time we're done, we can challenge that. This God is the king of the universe. He is the only one who possesses, here's a big word for today, aseity. Oh, you're looking at me blank. Let me tell you what that word aseity means, because it is a precious word. It says a lot about God. And if you reflect on this, it'll tell you a lot about you. Aseity means needs nothing. God is the only being in the universe who needs nothing. He needs nothing. He is perfectly complete. He is perfectly satisfied. He is perfectly intact in every possible way, every sense of fulfillment. He does not need us. And I've heard people say God things like God was lonely. He wanted a family. He came to make a family because, well, he wanted a family because that's what he needed. That is just that. that let's just call it what it is. That's heresy. That is to say, God is like us rather than the other way around that the scripture presents. He made us to be like him. We are created in his likeness. But God has chosen to adopt us. And so I think this is such a, a beautiful, beautiful uh, thing that, that we're seeing here. Let, let me read this quote from John Stott. God sent his son that we might have the status of sonship. And he sent his spirit that we might have an experience of it. That's from John Stott's The Message of Galatians, Only One Way. Published in 1968, by the way. Said a long time ago, but I don't know of anyone who said it, had it, said it any better than, than what John Stott just said too, because I just think that is beautiful. And so we see here that the, this epistle has had a bit of a turning point now. Scholars generally see that there's three sort of sections in Galatians and now we're coming almost into the middle section now. So what we have, as I mentioned, Paul's sternness in, in the opening section has now changed a little bit where he's a bit softer. He refers to the Galatians as brothers. And so we'll see that a bit later on in this chapter. But it shows that there's a different tone in what's happening here. It's important to understand that many people see Christianity, the acceptance of the gospel, which is the entrance into Christianity, as merely the means by which they will go to heaven. Uh, N.T. Wright, one of my favorite scholars, is doing, a, at the moment I noticed on YouTube, doing a short series on what does salvation mean? And one of the first things he says is this, for many people, they think it means I get to go to heaven. 
And N.T. Wright says, well, it's surprising how little heaven is spoken of in either the Old Testament or the New Testament. And he's right. (laughs) Salvation, he says, is not a matter of going to heaven. In fact, as he points out, there's more about having the will of heaven enacted on earth in the New Testament than there is about us going to heaven. And one of the things that I hope I've pointed out, if I haven't, let me point it out now, is that in the Jewish mindset, the term God was often uh, swapped for the expression heaven. And so the Jews thought that the name of God, Yahweh, was such a precious word that instead of using that word, they would invoke the term heaven, Uranus. So we have this word heaven as a swap word for representing God. It's not altogether unusual in language to do this. We talk of you know, the federal parliament in Australia as if it was Canberra. We'll say things like, you know, out of Canberra today, it was da-da-da-da-da happened. And so we do this too. We, we refer to a location as representing the persons or the person, you know, out of Buckingham Palace, da-da-da-da, that kind of thing. So we're referring to a place when in fact we're meaning a person. And I think the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, use well, actually in the Old Testament as well, it uses this word heaven to, dis- to be a place that represents, actually represents God and his presence. And so many people think being saved is simply a matter of going to heaven. Uh, the book of Acts, when we read through the sermons of the apostles, it's actually striking how, how often they preach without any mention of heaven. As N.T. Wright is suggesting, we may need to reconsider, well, what is salvation? What does it actually mean? And I want to suggest to you that what Paul is going to unpack here in these seven verses is one of the most profound and significant aspects of what salvation means. So the primary message that we will see of the gospel is not about how we can enter into heaven, but about how we can enter into a reconciled relationship with God. That's salvation, being reconciled to God. In John 17 verses 1 to 3, Jesus praying this beautiful prayer, this high priestly prayer, which in in a very literal sense was the Lord's prayer. This is the prayer that the Lord prayed, where he says, as he lifted his eyes and hands to heaven, he said, Father. And he goes on, he says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So we see that without being reconciled to God, we can't possibly know God. And salvation is being set free from the bondage, the hindrances that keep us from knowing God. That's salvation. And when we talk about being saved, we're talking about What happens when we accept the gospel because the Holy Spirit did something in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls that caused us to turn to him and he broke the shackles of the tyrant that had us bound captive and we were set free. We were set free to come 
to know God. And so I would suggest to you that the Bible describes a person having a relationship with God as the most precious relationship you can have. It's one thing to know someone. We all could say, well, we know the Prime Minister. We know that it is currently uh, Anthony Albanese. And some of us may have even met him, shaken his hand. We may have we may have been able to have a brief chat with him. We may be someone who is able to have sat down with him over a cup of tea or whatever it might be. In other words, what we can talk about is levels of knowing. We can say, but then there's, then there's someone who really knows him because he lives with him and so on. But when we talk about a relationship with God, there comes a point when you, without accepting the, the message, the offer that he is making available to us, you can't possibly know him the way he wants to be known. That way, that means that process, that event that takes us from outside of the full capacity to know God is adoption. So the most precious of all relationships is adoption as a son or daughter, thereby gaining full access to the Father and having full inheritance rights. I say it's precious because I heard of an example where a, a, a child who was now an adult, who had just recently married, went to his parents and said, look, you're going to die soon. How about you give me my stake of the inheritance now so my wife and I can buy a house that currently we can't afford? That's <laughs> like, oh, my goodness. Um, can I tell you, that option was never on the table for me growing up, son of a truck driver who was a what we might call a battler all his life. I never had that option, in fact. We, my brother and sister and I, would often joke about the fact that you know it will we'll get to the end of you know my my parents, our parents will get to the end of their life and we'll we'll inherit debt. You know that was our story. But in this instance, I was staggered to hear that someone would do this. Almost seemingly, the same parallel of what Jesus told of the prodigal son, and, and he told that that parable to shock his audience because of the rudeness of the one who we identify as the prodigal son. But here we have an example of Paul describing a relationship in which God gladly, gladly makes available the inheritance rights. In fact, Hebrews 9.16 talks about the writer to the Hebrews has said, the old covenant's already been made obsolete. It's about to be done away with. That's Hebrews 8.13. And then the writer in Hebrews chapter 9 says, this is how a covenant, and the actual word is testament, and you think in terms of last will and testament, that, that testament only comes into effect with the death of the testator. You'll see it there in your English Bible, the word testator. In other words, the one who is bequeathing to his heirs. When the inheritance is settled, it's settled after the death of the testator. Now, this is a great way for us to understand 
If God has bequeathed an inheritance to all those who turn to him in faith, repentance and trust, then who's died? Who's died in order to make this happen? And this is the point of Hebrews 9. God has died. He died on the cross. The Son of God died on the cross. And there's lots of implications that happened as a result of that. And one of them is the inheritance is now available. And you might point out, but he rose from the dead. Yes, he conquered death as well. And that is a part of our inheritance as well. Galatians chapter 4, verse 1. Let's kick it off. Let's have a look at these four very precious verses. The Apostle Paul writes this. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Yeah, in one sense, the owner of everything, this child, this, you know, Paul's using the example of a young child. And in the Greco-Roman world, a young child actually had no right to his father's inheritance if his father had died. He had no right to that inheritance until he, the child, reached adulthood. This was a standard thing across the, the Greco-Roman world. In uh, the Italian culture, the Roman culture, they had it, I think, around about the age of 17. In the Greek culture, they had it around 14. And in the Jewish culture, they had it when the, the 12 to 13 years of age. That was when a child could claim their inheritance rights. But until then, they were treated as a child. Now, Paul's going to make this point. He's drawing a lesson, a, an analogy from that cultural practice in this verse, saying that you know he might be the owner of everything, but it's held in trust for him. And so the Apostle Paul is, is making this point. This is an analogy that under the Torah, the law, we were treated as children. But now that Christ has come, he has died and made the inheritance available to us. We see in verse 2 that Paul picks up this, this cultural picture. He says, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father, presumably in the will. Chapter 4, verse 3 says this, In the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So Paul is saying that we were, you know, under the old covenant, we were kept, we were under guardianship. We couldn't make the decisions that normally someone who has full possession of their inheritance can make. And we see Paul is referring to this is the, the condition of the will. And today this can happen too. A father today could, could write his will and set an age for which his heir or heirs would be able to get their inheritance and he could put an age on it, whatever he chose. That would be the condition of the will. And Paul states that it wasn't until Christ came and established the new covenant that the new covenant could redeem people so that they could receive the inheritance. What's the inheritance? Paul's going to make the point the inheritance is salvation made possible by the Holy Spirit. And this is one of the predominant themes through Paul's epistle to the Galatians. Not only is it about freedom, which is really the overall theme of this, freedom in Christ, but the, the means by which that freedom comes is by the Holy Spirit. When a person turns to God in faith and repentance and confession, 
the Holy Spirit has already done something in their life, already done something in their heart and mind. And when they turn to God in that faith and repentance and confession, the Holy Spirit, the word is, regenerates. And so Paul writes this, and I think this is one of the most profound verses in the Bible. But this is verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, which means at just the right time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. He is ticking so many boxes here. Christ kept the law. Jesus said, I've come to fulfill the law. And he did. He never broke any of the law. He fulfilled it utterly. He was born of a woman. He was made human flesh. That ticks the box against the Gnostic heresy. There's a silent G at the front of that word Gnostic, where they said flesh is evil, material is evil. And Paul says Jesus was flesh and he was not evil. And he was born under the law, he says, Galatians 4.4, 4, and just at the right time. And it's amazing when you consider at just the right time. The entire Greco-Roman world essentially had one common language. Sure, the Romans spoke Latin, the Greeks spoke Greek, and the Jews spoke Aramaic. But everyone spoke Koine Greek, the common Greek, the marketplace Greek. That was the lingua Franca, which means the universal language. Everyone spoke it. Everyone could write it, read it, and speak it. And so today, especially where where I am, where we are here in Tasmania, we are not bounded by nations that speak other languages. So we have no incentive <laughs> to, <laughs> to learn another language. And I laugh because I have tried. I have really tried. I spent about three or four years learning German. And you reckon the seven words that I'm able to remember now are going to get me by in conversation with any German speaker? Not a chance. I even went to Germany. <laughs> I thought, I'm ready now. Here we go. Uh, not, a, not a hope. But in that world, in the Greco-Roman world, they grew up, especially a Jew, would grow up hearing Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. And here it was just the right time when Paul could write his epistles in Greek and they would be read and understood anywhere in the Greco-Roman world of that day. The Romans had just finished building a road system that would enable their soldiers to move around the empire quickly. But it also enabled the apostles to spread the gospel all throughout the empire at that time. It's amazing. Just the right time. Verse 5. Why did God send his son at just the right time? Verse 5. To redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive. Here's the salvation. That we might receive adoption as sons. And that sons, as John Stott said in that opening quote that I gave, is a statement of status. And because you were sons... Paul says, verse 6, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That word Abba, the Hebrew word for daddy. Abba, Father. It's a beautiful thing. But you notice here, Paul says, that happened, that adoption happened. And because of it, you have received the spirit of God. The blessing that is inherited in the new covenant 
is the infilling of the Holy Spirit. This is exactly what Jesus said. The Holy Spirit, whom you have had with you, will be in you. That was not previously available under the Torah. So verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. It is absolutely the highest privilege in the universe and the highest privilege of the adoption and the redemption and the salvation that God has made available to us that we are now adopted by Father God to inherit unimaginable wealth and treasure. Unimaginable. And if you have never done it, if you have never accepted Father God's offer, you are not a million miles away. I don't care what you've done. I don't care who knows what you've done. I don't care how many times you've done it. God can forgive you and wipe the slate clean and replace the filthy rags spiritually that you're clothed with and spiritually put royal robes on you, put sandals on your feet and a ring on your finger that says, I am adopted. That family crest on the ring, everyone will know you are now a son or a daughter of God. And you have equal access to him any time you like, because you're the son. There's a beautiful picture of, of John F. Kennedy uh, in, in the Oval Office there where he has his little boy, his son, under his desk as he's conducting these powerful meetings with some of the world leaders and so on. It's a precious picture. And what a picture of how we have access to someone way more powerful than the President of the United States. Let's pray. Father, I do pray now for those who are joining with me, that God, you would touch their hearts. That, Father, something in their heart would say, this is what I've been looking for. This is what I need. And, Father, may you now work in their hearts to turn to you. Father, may a prayer arise in their heart that says, God, please forgive me. I confess to you that I am in need of you. I have botched my life up. I just need you now. I'm empty. I'm dry, I'm unfulfilled. And God, I know that you are the, you are the ultimate source of fulfillment, the ultimate source of life and strength and joy. And I come to you now and I ask for your forgiveness and I pray, fill me with this spirit that I've heard about. Fill me with your spirit, I pray. And help me from this day on, this moment on, to live for you. And I pray this in the name of your Son who has made this offer possible and available. Amen. Let me tell you, if you've prayed that prayer, I guarantee you from this time on your life will be different. And if you have prayed this prayer, let us help you. Let us help you by uh, advising you to seek out a local church near you. Find a church that preaches the Bible. Find a church that will tell you about Jesus. Find a church that will care enough to tell you the truth. And if you can't find one, then contact us. You'll see, uh, Karen will tell you our details in a moment. And, and contact us. We will do what we can electronically 
to help you to start your journey in coming to know who God has called you to be. So let me pray for you now. Father, I thank you for those who've joined with me now in this broadcast, in this podcast. And I pray, Father, that you would help them to have a greater understanding of your immense, infinite love for them. And may it cause each of us, including me, to live as the son of a king, the daughter of a king for women, that we might realize that he has made us sons and daughters, not just of anybody, (laughs) but of the king of the universe. And may we live like it. I pray for this in Jesus' name. If you'd like to listen again or you've missed a program, you'll find an archive of all previous episodes on our website, findingtruthmatters.org. For tonight's program, select Galatians Part 8 from our online store. You can also find the podcast by subscribing to Finding Truth Matters on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. As we've heard tonight, the highest privilege of our redemption and salvation is that we are adopted by Father God to inherit unimaginable treasure. More from Dr. Corbett next week as he continues in Galatians. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.